0: Ian, on this week's show, is there any chance we could go behind the scenes and talk to the legal team at Private Eye? I don't think that's a good idea. Page 94, The Private Eye Podcast. Hello and welcome back to page 94. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and this week has been a very exciting week for World News. As we record this, Russia and Turkey are engaged in a tense standoff. So if you're listening before World War 3 breaks out, uh, then do enjoy your remaining time. If you're listening afterwards, then I'm afraid we can't do refunds on subscriptions. This week, we'll be talking to two of Private Eyes' most important structural underpinning members, one of whom is our architecture correspondent, Pilotti, who has explicitly told me that that metaphor does not work, and the second is Robin, the head of Private Eyes' extensive legal team. We start off with Pilotti, and I began by asking him what Private Eyes' architecture correspondent even does anyway. Well, my brief is anything vaguely to do with
1: architecture and, and outrages. Um, you know, to, to do with buildings I mean the column is properly called Nooks and Corners of the New Barbarism um, That was the original title When, when Betjeman did it and that's Really what it is, still is in a way Everybody calls it nooks and crannies But it isn't nooks and crannies It's always <laughs> been nooks and corners And I suppose it must have been Tony Rushton Who produced that sort of Victorian rustic lettering Which always appears at the top Betjeman began it in I think 1971 He poked fun at various modern buildings and then i think got bored after eight issues it was then taken on by his daughter the late lamented candida lysett green and that photographer did it for a time and then it lapsed and round about 1981 richard ingrams wanted to revive it and he asked john betjeman who i knew and betjeman recommended me and to my amazement i've done it ever since are you an architect? No, I'm not an architect, no. Okay. I'm sort of a historian, architectural historian, okay. historian and, and writer.
0: This is not intended as criticism. It's one of the more depressing columns in the eye <laughs> because every fortnight it's this beautiful building is going to be torn I mean, down. This is no, very
1: depressing. And all this stuff comes in with ridiculous things that people do and outrageous behavior by developers or, or councils. Yes, it is. Which is why <laughs> the occasional joke is good and the occasional good story where uh, the eye has been on the right side. Often we have supported local campaigns, and that really matters. I suspect that what I say in the sort of London context, they just brush Private Eye aside. But when a local scandal appears in Private Eye, I think it's a huge asset to local amenity groups and societies all over Britain. I remember in particular one campaign I was keen to help with, and I gather afterwards with very much the Private Eye combined with local people, was over building on the Glebe land outside Ely Cathedral. And that went on for some time. What's Gleebland? Well, it was owned by the church. Oh, I see. Okay. And it was an open space and still is, or part of it is. And there was a local group, but Nooks and Corners
0: supported their campaign. And that was a good victory. Are there ever stories where it seems to be really on a knife edge to you, whether which side is in the right, some developments that might be necessary, some which? Um, oh,
1: yes. I, I try to see both sides. Obviously, prejudice comes into it to some extent, as it always must. And one gets to – I hope I've developed over a long period the skill of knowing which, which are the letters that come in from lunatics. Um, it was easier when letters came in. You can always tell. Um, sometimes it's more difficult with emails, but you – soon realize people who are obsessed and you know, well, it's just an extreme case of nimbyism you don't get green
0: ink and in emails no quite <laughs> <laughs> you've written a fair bit about the the high buildings going up for example in london this is a particular trend at the moment yes
1: well complete lack of any control and the mayor this mayor and of course his predecessor both have sort of applauded this and let far too much happen um and the damage is done really i'm afraid even if the buildings haven't gone up yet, they've been approved. Yeah, the yes, some have been approved, and an awful lot are going up already. Yeah. I mean, one can poke fun. I mean, it's difficult with the column to make it a general point about you know, policy or a whole area. Um, but I've tried occasionally, such as over the, all the things that are happening in Battersea. I had a go, I remember, once. You know, that suddenly, that area, which was just partly derelict and Battersea, Dog's Home and nine l's market um was up for grabs with huge developments which of course are all
0: going up now the area being utterly changed yeah what bears on your judgment over whether you think a development might be a good thing a bad thing somewhere in between well it's a subjective thing it's a
1: matter of you know, whether there's any sort of decent architect or planner involved and the nature of the opposition i mean if you know, when there's a serious local group objecting to that too much that too, you know, too dense a development lack of affordable housing or just the height I think there's a case for voicing a criticism. I think the strength of private eye is, of course, it, 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 as in all other spheres, it, it's really independent. I mean, architectural correspondent, thank goodness I mean, I'm not an architectural correspondent, um, you know, attached to newspapers, because they're always, in a way, tied. Really. I, I, I realize early on it's a huge mistake ever to meet architects, where um, they take you out to lunch and the rest of it, and then they think they own you. Because the architects are always charming, even the worst of them charm is their speciality that's how they get work and once you've met them and had a drink with them or lunch with them you had it so it's very important to keep entirely separate from the architectural world do they still then you can insult them (laughs) do
0: they still try not with me but I
1: mean there was a time when I tried to be a serious architectural correspondent on a newspaper I was a huge failure at it Um, but I realized then great mistake to get to know people I have sometimes said, of course, you know, the, the, the best architects are dead ones. I mean, without being silly about it, at least then you can be objective about um, what they've done. They're never going to try and take
0: you out no, to lunch. No, quite. <laughs> or sue. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to ask about is um, the Hugh Casson Award, which you started. I certainly started.
1: Of course, Hugh Casson was a very talented architect and the mastermind behind the Festival of Britain, the architectural site. Uh, and with his partner Neville Conder, you know, put up some rather interesting buildings back in the nineteen fifties and sixties. I mean, I, I, one does have hobby horses, and there've been people I've had it in for for a long time, and he was one of them, mainly because he, he was one of what was the, the term, isn't he? He was sort of gamekeeper turned poacher, all the other way round. But I mean, he was a very interesting, talented man founder member of the victorian society Uh, but as he got older um, he would turn up you know take a fee for giving evidence at public inquiries to recommend the demolition of buildings a trade i despise though lots of people are doing it and he would use as one of his qualifications i'm vice president of the victorian society arguing for the demolition of victorian buildings and it came to a head over i think liverpool street station back in the 80s when um The society had actually had enough, and he resigned as vice-chairman just before um, the society would ask him to go. But it was just hypocrisy, and I thought after that I would have it in for him. And so I I, I waged unceasing war on him, and I thought the best way to ridicule him was by having the medal for the worst building of the year named after him and then using one of his own sketches of himself on the medal. And I'm I'm unrepentant. I think I may have made um, his last years, he may have been... I don't know, irritated, saddened by this. In he wasn't getting the fees in, but I'm unrepentant because he shouldn't have behaved the way he did. He didn't need to. Are there any particularly egregious winners of the UCASN Award? Well, I think one of the most obvious winners was that ridiculous skyscraper in the city of London that lurches outwards and melts motor cars parked in the street outside, <laughs> so-called walkie-talkie building. I hate all these nicknames by an argentinian american called rafael vignoli who's risen without trace it's a terrible building and i think two years later or a year later it was given the carbuncle award by building design but we got in first (laughs) but it was an obvious example of a really terrible building that shouldn't have gone up
0: i walked past it the other day and in front of you as it looms up in the background there are some i think georgian buildings are about three stories high they're very gorgeous and then behind it you've got this enormous building yeah. it's not just the size the fact that I, I do think in the end
1: any building that's satisfying you know, it follows the well not the logic but the, you know, the necessity of gravity the existence of gravity and looks if it's rooted to the ground that building sort of curves outwards in a way which i think is both ugly and i think distressing physically which is why it deserved the prize. Of course, and I gather Vignoli did another building in California, where the same effect, of course, by having the starts curving outward. They're, they're what was the word? They're concave, and having this effect of concentrating the sun's rays, so that the, the
0: car melting quality already occurred on one of his other buildings. There are some good buildings going up across the country today aren't there? From the column it sometimes seems like there's nothing When I think
1: back to when the column started or before when Betjeman started the column in 71, architecture is infinitely better now than it was Really? Oh I think much 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 better not just because there was a whole post-modern business and a return to tradition though that had something to do with it, they're, they're just I think they're, they're better made now and, and, and that sort of culture of producing cheap buildings for a short life just using reinforced concrete and plate glass or you know, sheets of glass in a simple, crude way. thats That's gone. Buildings, I think, are much more sophisticated now. The general look, I think, even of, of, of housing, you know, of, of most commercial buildings using brick as well as some um, concrete of a structure or steel of structure. Oh, things have got much better. Well, that's reassuring at least. Mm-hmm. there are still some awful things like that (laughs) far too much glass so often architects just reach for the glass catalogue when they don't know quite what to do
0: (laughs) you write a lot about uh, places like for example english heritage
1: well yes well i mean the state of conservation i I think is worrying because for a decade now the absolutely necessary statutory body full of expertise on matters of Historic architecture and planning, historic England, formerly English heritage, has been squeezed and squeezed and squeezed by governments that couldn't care less. And that is a great worry. There are very good people in it, but they're lent on politically and starved at funds, which makes their job more and more difficult.
0: You don't really think of conservation being a governmental responsibility, I suppose. Obviously, what it is, is at root. You know. it's,
1: I mean, Historic England has this odd status. It is you know, funded by government, though it's independent. They, they, can, they, they recommend listing of buildings, but ultimately it is the minister or the, the Department of um, you know, Culture, Media and Sport that actually does the listing. They make the recommendations. And it will be historic England that gives evidence to public inquiry, that sort of thing. So they have, have an, an odd status. And if I occasionally have them, you know, I think one of their decisions is wrong. I will
0: you know, obviously say so in nooks and corners. Are you optimistic about the state of conservation in architecture? From the column, I would have guessed not, but I'm not sure well, now. Not, I mean, the way things are going
1: with, with, with the government, they, say they want to relax the planning laws, it all in favor of development that couldn't care less about environmental issues – it's all very depressing. Um, the encouraging thing is you know, there, there are still there are very good people um, in the organisations and the conservation societies, you know, the Victorian Society and Save Britain's Heritage, really good people involved um, and people care. Cameron goes on about the big society. The big society has existed in England for centuries and it, it, it's people like the Victorian Society and all the local amenity societies and, 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 and all the rest of it who fight for things. That's the big society. And often they're fighting, of course, a monster.
0: Pilotti there, or to give him his real name, Gavin Stamp. Now, we turn to the legal side of things at Private Eye. I wanted to secure an interview with Robin Shaw, Private Eye's in-house lawyer. And after a great deal of wrangling and compromising with the powers that be, I was able to secure an interview, which is very exciting. Uh, Normally, when you interview the editor of somewhere, they might have a lawyer sitting in to check up on what they're saying. Uh, this week, the editor is sitting in on our interview with the lawyer. We started by talking about one of the most illustrious cases in privatised legal history, that of Arkel v. Prestram. And here is Ian's take on the matter.
2: Arkel v. Prestram um, was a very early um, privatised case uh, which was brought against uh, my predecessor, Richard Ingrams, and uh, a letter arrived from Arkel's solicitors saying that uh, they would consider the amount of damages as proportionate to the response received from Private Eye. And the response my predecessor gave was, fuck off. And he wondered uh, whether that would influence the nature of their uh, (laughs) proceedings. So um, it became a sort of shorthand. I would certainly never use it. That's not true. (laughs) I mean, it's been in the mag
0: within the last month, I'm sure.
2: (laughs) Okay, look, I've got the lawyer here to correct me. I think you as well.
0: Robin, you are the lawyer with possibly the hardest job in britain among lawyers is that fair
3: uh well that's only what a lot of people tell me although in fact i find it rather enjoyable and not normally too demanding but there are certain times that uh, it can be quite tricky
2: the word um lucrative hasn't been put in robin has it <laughs>
3: <laughs> well that's not that's not a word i'm not familiar with when it comes to myself certainly in a good deal of the copy that we write about in certain firms um that is um Uh, criticism that we might make.
0: So the the one story that's just come in in fact came in just after the latest magazine went to print was about Tim Yeo MP Uh, who's a conservative MP who has just been suing uh, the Sunday Times under the auspices of uh, the firm he hired Carter Ruck who are not unknown to the eye I think.
3: They certainly are not in a number of different ways but uh, the sad news today is that uh, Carter Ruck's client Mr Yeo has lost Uh, his libel claim against the Sunday Times. The sadder news is that uh, Carter Ruck were acting on a conditional fee arrangement, which in effect means no win, no fee. So the consequence is that uh, they will not be paid a single penny for any of their work on the case. The eye did draw attention earlier this year to the amount of fees they were hoping to charge, which was about half a million pounds at that stage. And that's before they'd put on their markup for taking on the risk of winning the case. So no doubt they were looking forward and rubbing their hands at the prospect of picking up around a million pounds if their client has won. But so they say the sad news is that uh, they will in fact not be earning a penny out of the case.
2: Can I just say that um, Robin's mispronouncing the name of the firm? No. Uh, deliberately. I
0: don't know why. Yeah, sorry, we'll call it by its proper name, Carterfuck, from now on <laughs> in this conversation. The, like, very long history between the eye and Carterfuck, as in stretching back to 80s,
3: 70s? I think it probably goes back um, to the 60s or the 70s, because Mr Carteruck, sadly now uh, no longer with us, um, was around, I imagine, from the 40s onwards.
2: I should say, in Robin's favour, there was quite a lot of contact before Robin was appointed with the original Peter Carterfuck, who once actually um, he rang, Private Eye, and said, "I do not want to appear in your pathetic magazine as Peter Carter." And um, uh, could you make sure this doesn't happen again? I said, "Absolutely, Peter." And in the next issue, he he appeared as um, Peter Fartacuck.
3: <laughs>
2: it was a suitably grown-up response.
0: So what does the job of being privatised in-house lawyer actually entail?
3: Well, this, this is, of course, highly confidential matters, so I will um, speak until I'm told to be quiet by, um, by the editor. But uh, in, in essence, what my job involves is coming and looking at the copy before publication and going through it all and raising any queries with uh, the journalists or uh, Ian, as may be appropriate. And then after that process, dealing with any Claims, complaints or other issues that uh, might arise after publication.
2: Of which there may or may not be any, obviously.
3: There may or may not be any. Uh, Some people think that uh, there's a terrible conflict of interest involved in all that because it must be my interest to let through as many uh, libels and... (laughs) as possible and I'm in the happy position that uh, so far uh, Ian has never come and uh, accused me of uh, letting anything through that I shouldn't have done but in fact I'd like to think as of course all of us lawyers do have highly moral and ethical approach to such matters and uh, resist that temptation.
0: It's only just struck me that it's a conflict of interest. <laughs> let's assume for just a moment that the magazine has gone to print and for some reason for some spurious reason someone has taken exception to something that's been said about them in the mag and they've uh, asked their lawyer to write a letter to the eye threatening all sorts of dire consequences what's the next step
3: the next step is to put together a letter of response to the complaint Obviously, the nature of the response like, depends on the, whether or not there's any substance to the claim. And a, a lot of cases, uh, the view is taken that is, in fact, in reality, no substance to this claim. It's either just a trial or a misconceived attempt to try and stop the eye writing any further about the subject. And so in those cases, the normal approach is to write a pretty robust response.
0: So would that be a polite response in the vein of Arkel V. Prestram?
3: Oh, I suppose that might be the substance of it. Uh, Although lawyers, of course, express themselves in slightly different language.
0: There are also stories about the Eye's long feud which went on with Robert Maxwell. And there are lots of very entertaining stories about, was it Peter Cook turning up in court and waving his checkbook at Maxwell after lunch and things like that?
3: Well, again, I think that's slightly before my time. But uh, the Maxwell issues continued even after his death uh, in the context of the trial of his two sons now about 20 years ago because one of the first issues that arose after I started doing uh, the eye was uh, when Ian was summoned to appear before uh, Mr Justice Phillips down at the uh, courts in Chancery Lane where the sons trial was taking place over uh, the issue of the eye that had come out the day before because it had made the astonishing and highly controversial suggestion that um robert maxwell was dishonest it was a perfectly
2: innocent piece saying that um uh, he'd arrived in hell and been made very very welcome and uh, he was enjoying himself and it was a fairly traditional satirical piece about what happens to someone after death and i thought it was entirely justifiable
3: well mr justice phillips um thought precisely the opposite <laughs> and said so we duly appeared uh, waiting to see what he was going to say about it all and he sat there looking very stern and was snapping away at the counsel we'd instructed but then uh, our counsel pointed out that uh, a supposed warning letter that had been sent round by the attorney general's office about what one could or could not write about the Maxwell trial had been sent to every institution in the land apart from private eye (laughs) because typical civil servant bureaucracy had overlooked uh, the one publication with whom he'd had the most battles of all during his life including of course the case that went to trial a few years before and uh, Mr Justice Phillips much to his obvious uh, ire had to accept that that was the case and so therefore um, there was very little if anything he could uh, do about the eye apart from looking stern and um, accepting an assurance that of course the eye would never publish anything to this a similar effect in the future and that was that.
2: And that was contempt of court?
3: Yes and that I should have said that, uh, that the reason we were there was because uh, the eye was supposedly in contempt of court which is another uh, area that uh, I as the eye lawyer have to be particularly wary about because um, Ian is under a uh, warning, albeit now of some antiquity, that uh, if he overstepped the mark again, the courts might... This,
2: this is very old, this warning. I'm sure it's it's not current. What, what exactly is the warning? What does the warning consist of? This is Sonia Sutcliffe, who... Would is the wife of the yorkshire ripper i mean we're going back we're going back decades here i'm, I'm sure this is this is all irrelevant
3: well i'd like to think <laughs> that it was but uh, on the other hand it's an expensive process to be go down to contempt of court and have trials aborted because you've um, put your foot in it as it were so still a very um germane subject indeed only last week conde Nast magazine were uh well they've yet to be found guilty of contempt for uh, what they rate in the midst of the Rebecca Brooks Fane hacking trial.
2: Yes my principal concern is obviously not whether this ancient warning will come and get me but contempt of court makes you look a complete idiot if you collapse someone else's trial particularly if you want them to be found guilty and to go down so the idea of uh, interfering in a trial by writing the wrong thing
0: is one of Robin's obviously main jobs Whatever else she's doing. Well, I, I want—I oh, want to ask so much more. So, for example, can you say anything about how often the I get sued these days? As a reputation, Ian is supposedly the most sued man in British legal history.
3: Well, I suppose it depends what you mean by sued. In the sense of sued, meaning actually going to issue writs, then they are relatively few these days. And in terms of claims or complaints by letter, which need to be resolved, then th- those are much more frequent. So Ian, I think maybe the most complained about person in the country, but not necessarily the most sued person oh. at the moment.
0: Um, the eighties are traditionally known as the bad old days or good old days of libel, depending on which place you're looking at it from. But um, the laws have changed recently, haven't they?
3: They have changed very recently. But going back slightly further, they did change also in the context of damages. And of course, the eye were heavily involved in the Sonia Sutcliffe case, where the jury had awarded I think it was half a million or some 600,000 some very very high figure which I think was really the breaking point in the public mind as to matters getting completely out of control and so there were series of cases in the court of appeal of which that was one which had the effect of reducing damages very very dramatically and so that uh, removed the main incentive of people who sued for libel namely lining their pockets with limel damages But more recently, the the Defamation Act of 2013, which came to force at the beginning of last year, has also changed the law to make it much more difficult to bring a libel claim in the first place. So that has had also a depressing effect on the libel market. And it has to be said that uh, a lot of lawyers uh, have done very well, thank you very much, out of the phone hacking litigation and so they've diverted their attention to that in recent years and are prolonging that for as long as they conceivably can. But um, certainly the libel front, where the eye is possibly most vulnerable, has um, decreased a lot.
0: That sounds tentatively like a good thing and like th- there are fewer problems for the eye these days.
3: Uh, certainly, I think, certainly compared to the days of the uh, 80s where there was probably 10, 15, 20 claims in court going on at any particular moment I mean proceeding to trial yes it 's had a, a dramatic effect.
2: there still seem to be quite a lot of trouble with confidentiality and um, these other new areas that um, uh, that you you 've brought up and advised on
3: well confidentiality has partly replaced libel uh, because of the uh, effect of the human rights legislation that came to force a decade or so ago, and that reached its uh, Heights in the the super injunction era of a couple of years ago now when every day of the week uh, super injunctions are being granted. At least one heard by rumour, of course, because one wasn't allowed to know strictly that 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 was happening. But of course that uh, took a bit of a hit in the Ryan Giggs case and obviously the social media has made it virtually impossible to impose any blanket bans on anything the, the I itself got involved in the super injunction case in Andrew Mars' involvement with a journalist because the I were informed by his lawyers that Mars had an injunction and then uh, fought a long battle to actually uh, get Mars to back down from the injunction he'd claimed on the footing that uh, Mars, as a journalist, should not be uh, seeking to injunct. Matters of interest and eventually the eye succeeded in doing that and said so the story emerged.:
2: Can I just say the story emerged when he told the mail? So, yes, I was so say. All, all the money that I'd paid uh, well, a lot of it to you, obviously, to fight this injunction resulted in not a huge amount.
3: Yes, although there was another occasion where – I fear you paid even more money – where a former president of the Law Society tried to stop the eye publishing a story about a reprimand he'd uh, received from the Law Society, which governs the solicitor's profession. And that was even more surprising because this person was himself in charge of the – or a member of the body of the main regulator of the legal profession (laughs) – but he took the eye to court and on appeal and lost both times round and ended up with a, an enormous bill and then had to resign from his position because uh, it was simply no longer tenable. Say so in that case, they, the eye did manage to get the benefit of the story, as I recall.
0: Are there any especially egregious examples of people trying it on where you think this is so spurious, there's no legal background for this whatsoever?
3: Well, I think that the, the the most memorable one was when the Barclay brothers complained about an article that appeared in the Jake pages of The Eye.
0: Uh, we should say Weirdo Twins, the Barclay brothers, as their their official name in private eye. Yeah, <laughs> and So the Barclay brothers who own uh, the Telegraph, the Ritz and various other things.
3: Yes, and it was an article in the Jake pages about their approach to paying taxes. And that led to a, On the face of it, a a serious letter of complaint written by their uh, distinguished city lawyers demanding retractions and apologies and and all the rest of it. Now, I mean, anyone with a supposed braid in their head could have must have realized looking at the eye that this was a Jake piece because it was next to the Cameron uh, weekly description of the events going on at uh, the school of which he was supposedly headmaster and other jake items but that simply had escaped them so we uh, rate back at some length drawing attention indeed to cases involving the daily telegraph where they defended cases on the uh, footing that uh, the article was not serious and that was the last we ever heard of them
2: until after this podcast
0: presumably (laughs) when they'll return to the fray so, as privatised lawyer, are there any particularly interesting cases that are going on right now?
3: Well, there's a very interesting case involving no, a very... No, very there
2: aren't. <laughs> no, there aren't, Robin. There are no interesting cases going on.
0: OK, I appreciate I can't ask that. Um, can you tell me if the I has a contingency fund for fighting these kind of lawsuits? And if so, what's what's the approximate size of it?
3: Well, in accordance with my advice, I've suggested that... I, uh, I don't
2: think
0: we want to hear any of this. I, I don't think it's of any
2: interest. I, I really don't see the point of this. Do you, Robin? Well, no, no. you see? There
0: we go. Well, thanks very much for coming in. That's really good of you. Uh, The recently fired private eye lawyer, Robin Shaw, there, and we thank him for his many years of service to the magazine. So, that's it. We will see you next time with another episode. Goodbye.